Hello and welcome to Chicago on the Rocks. Today, we are pleased and proud in our very first episode to invite Dr. Robert McBride, noted educator and school superintendent, to our show. Dr. McBride? Hey, great to see you, Paul. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, I, uh, uh, Dr. Robert McBride, very uh, formal, oftentimes uh, bus drivers in my district like to call me Dr. Bob. Uh, as do sometimes uh, students. I'm sure I have other nicknames that I don't know about. But uh, as you know, Paul, I'm the superintendent of Lockport Township High School District 205. It's a large public township high school district uh, southwest of the city of Chicago in the city of Lockport, which at one time wanted to be the city of Chicago um, and grow. Uh, it just didn't get as lucky as Chicago with the lake and a river as well. Uh, we service about 4,200 uh, students. We have uh, about 600 employees in our school district. All right, all right. Let's just begin at the beginning, Bob. How about, why don't you tell the audience where, uh, where you grew up, where you're from, and how you got interested into uh, education? Well, Paul, my most formidable uh, early beginnings really took place in Oak Park. My parents moved around a little bit, but really settled back in Oak Park, which was a familiar place to my mother because uh, her parents uh, were from Oak Park. My grandfather attended Oak Park and River Forest High School. Uh, they raised seven children in Oak Park right on Scoville Avenue, down the street from Oak Park and River Forest High School, and sent my aunts and uncles to either Oak Park uh, or Fenwick or Trinity. And there I was uh, returning there with my family. Uh, grew up in a diverse, uh, amazing community filled with ideas and eclectic types of folks uh, all around us in our neighborhood. And my father was a Chicago public educator at Kenwood Academy. And I think that is the very first influence on me in terms of education. From a very small age, I saw my father teach, coach, I was right by his side for so many of those uh, events. And it really began to open up in me the possibility of one human being lifting up another human being and what that enterprise uh, could mean. I think throughout my formidable years in high school, I was inspired by teachers. I went to a tremendous high school myself, Oak Park River Forest High School. And in those years, the examples I had and what education could mean launched me into great places like an undergraduate career at Northwestern, a graduate career at Harvard University, and then I brought it all back to being a high school English teacher at the place where it all started, Oak Park and River Forest High School. Well, now, when you were at Northwestern, your major was in, it was in English and, and in poetry. Is that correct? It was, and specifically, uh, many people major in English literature. I majored in writing. Specifically, I was in the writing program at Northwestern University where I did focus in on writing. And my logic with that was that um, when you commit to the arts, when you commit to something as difficult as writing, uh, you begin looking at the world in a way to uh, express yourself, communicate yourself, and in some ways solve problems. Uh, the problem of expression. If you can pull apart a thought or a feeling that you have to express it in an artistic way to other human beings and make that connection, you can probably do anything. And I just think communication is so much at the basis of everything we do as human beings. And then for graduate school, you went out, went out east and you were getting, you got your graduate degree in education. I, I did. I went back east and uh, was lucky enough. Uh, I was exploring uh, the west coast. 
uh, the University of Chicago and Harvard University as graduate sites, and I had made the decision to uh, go to a graduate school of education. As much I was drawn as I was drawn to the University of Chicago, I decided I'd grow up my whole life here in the Chicagoland area. So I went back east to the Boston area and went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and uh, earned a master's in uh, curriculum and teaching. And it was a tremendous time, experience, program, real-time growth for me uh, as a person and a professional from the benefits of being uh, on my own, truly, on the East Coast, all the way to uh, being at Harvard, such a rich academic atmosphere to, to really learn how to become a teacher. And then there was a detour to Scotland afterwards. Is that correct? There was. I was lucky enough uh, to first teach at a place called Newton North High School, then come back again to teach uh, at Oak Park and River Forest High School. And Oak Park and River Forest High School is a school that's always prided itself on granting sabbaticals to uh, renew their staff once you achieve tenure to invest in professional development. Uh, in order to qualify for a sabbatical, you have to have some kind of fellowship or experience that's, that's worthy. And uh, I was lucky enough to apply to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and uh, serve for six months as a school teacher fellow. And because I had that fellowship, uh, Oak Park and River Forest granted me a year-long sabbatical to really tease that out. Uh, my wife and I lived in uh, St. Andrews, Scotland. I worked in the uh, School of English right on the edge of the North Sea uh, for six great months. That had to be rich, right where they invented the language. It, it, it was. It was very powerful. Um, what I didn't realize at the time earning that fellowship is the type of people that I would see. For example, the individual that I worked with the most is a gentleman named Michael Alexander, and more properly, Sir Michael Alexander, because he was the first person in the modern era to translate Beowulf from its Anglo-Saxon, not into pro prose, but into its poetic form, which doesn't seem like that great of a feat, but it is when you're taking an ancient text broken and fragmented across time, trying to reassemble it, but then also trying to mimic the poetic form that its original authors used. When I showed up at St. Andrews and had the pleasure of working for Sir Michael Alexander, and he was knighted for that accomplishment by Queen Elizabeth, uh, he was working with a gentleman named Seamus Haney, who was trying to accomplish the same feat in the 21st century. So it was that kind of richness and that kind of exposure uh, that, that I was around all the time. Ah, oh, that's exciting. I read the Seamus Haney version of Beowulf, uh, but not the Alexander. All right, Bob. May I call you Bob? Of course. Well, great. Uh, what would you say would be the major differences in between... Uh, education system in Britain versus the USA? Part of my university fellowship, Paul, was uh, being attached to a large public high school in St. Andrews, Madras College. And um, I, I can't definitively say if these are the major differences, but these are the differences I noted um, between how public education was conducted in Britain and, and here. Um, one was in terms of scheduling far more fluid schedule. Uh, most public high schools here in the United States stay on a rigid schedule uh, the whole school year and year after year after year. Uh, it uses the same bell schedule, sometimes rarely changes. In uh, 
in, in Britain at the school that I was at, we would every two weeks reassess the schedule and sometimes change it to uh, whatever the needs were for the students, for the institution, and staff would come together in the whole school and make a different schedule every, every, every two weeks. The other thing I noticed is a team approach to courses. Here in the United States, an individual high school teacher teaches a classroom of students for usually about 50 minutes. In Britain, there would be a team of five or six of us. Whatever that course content uh, was, we would rotate into lessons based on our expertise. So it was a team of five or six teaching uh, the course uh, as opposed to one person and maybe perhaps you know personality driving uh, that class. And then the final thing was grading. Here in the United States, we oftentimes grade students multiple times a week, filling our grade books at the high school level, giving them points or letter marks, uh, letting them know what, what grade they're at, um, in Britain, typically, a uh, teacher takes more of a, a responsibility as a coach. A grade comes out uh, at the end of the semester or sometimes at the end of a whole school year. It's the high school level, really, the, the teacher is coaching students towards their A-level and O-level exams, which are very important for college admission. So three, three differences. Uh, a differ, another difference is here we have a very rich athletic and activity program in most public high schools, you wouldn't find that in Britain. That's something students have to do outside of school. So they don't get much in the way of extracurriculars? No, that's something that a, a family would have to pursue uh, on their own, really. <clears throat> what, these are incredibly big differences. I had no idea they were so distinctly different across the pond. Anything that you would like to bring into the U.S. from over there? Well, you know, those three differences I mentioned, we could learn a lot. Uh, the scheduling. Uh, we live in a very fast-paced, fast-moving, dynamic culture now. But yet, if you look at, uh, for example, my grandfather, he graduated Oak Park River Forest in 1928. His bell schedule represents many of the bell schedules you would see in public high schools today. It hasn't changed in uh, almost 100 years, despite all the changes we know. Uh, team teaching, isn't that the way that corporations, the military, so many walks of life uh, teach as a team or uh, act as a team, there could be real benefit there. And then I think most importantly in an area that I've invested a lot of time is assessment. I teach at North Central College. I, I specifically teach how we assess, evaluate, and coach students. And that's an area where we could use quite a bit of work in terms of how we help students understand their own perform performance, evaluate their performance, improve their performance. Um, over the years, I've found that grades do not really motivate performance. Uh, they don't really give students the kind of feedback that they need in order to own and, and improve uh, what they're doing academically. So it's a huge area where we could uh, make some strides. So as a sidebar, what do you find uh, does motivate students and their performance? It might be a bigger question than I realize, but... Yeah, I, I, you know, I would say, Paul, really two basic things um, that, that many human beings can um, recognize. If, if, if you're in any process, any coaching process, from athletic coaching to academic coaching to therapy, um, if you are looking to improve yourself, one, the person who's coaching you matters, and you have to have a relationship with that person, and it has to be a motivational and a positive relationship with that person. 
And then two, that person has to be more than a critic. They have to give you the tools to assess your own performance, make incremental improvements, and you have to feel that you've made improvements. If uh, you don't have a strong relationship with that coach, and that coach is only a judge pointing out where you've fallen short, the chances that growth will take place are none. <laughs> and you know what I what I get concerned about in American public education is students do not get to pick their coaches. They they go to school. Uh, a scheduler tells them what teacher they will be with, and all too often their experience is that the teacher is a judge giving them certain points and grades if they do well, taking points and grades away if they do poorly, and too seldom is there an opportunity to learn from the mistakes you've made on a performance, address those mistakes, revise those mistakes, retest, requiz, do it all over again, and we all know as adults that's where we thrive and learn, when we get that second chance. And that's something that I think American public high schools just have to grow in terms of academics or else students won't grow uh, with us. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the judge is very unidimensional, the coach is multidimensional, and as I say, for example, about writing, there's no great writing, there's only great rewriting. And we don't emphasize that in our current structure. A ab absolutely, and, and I have to, uh, you know, it's simple to say, teachers, please, allow students to retest, revise, re-quiz. Um, administrators like myself, boards of education have to take ownership that we've given most public high school teachers 150 to 160 students a day. And uh, to many teachers, that proposition simply sounds like I gave a test, an essay, a quiz to students, and now I have to evaluate it, but I have to evaluate it all over again. Uh, so we have to think systematically about ways that we can either lower caseloads or help teachers with strategies uh, that, that make it manageable to reassess students. I love it. We'll have to figure that one out on our next show, perhaps. I'm working uh, on it. All right. Awesome. So back. So with respect to what you're working on, so after you graduated Harvard, you went to work at OPRF, Oak Park and River Forest, your high school. And before long, you were the youngest head of the English department they ever had. Is that correct? I, I believe so. I don't know so. I was young when I became a leader. I was 33 years old and maybe too young. Uh, when you look back over your shoulder uh, at a more advanced age, 20-some years later, as a superintendent, you know, many of us will say we were too young to be leaders. Uh, <laughs> but, but that was the case, and I was very honored to, to have that position in, in a great department for sure. And with respect to running an English department or any department in high school, um, what was that experience like? Overall, was it uh, something that you enjoyed? Was it uh, a lot more trouble than it was worth? How did that go? I, I would say it's thrilling. I I coach many many colleagues who are looking to be move from full time teaching to leadership into a department chair position for a number of reasons. First, it's thrilling because you're a leader, but you're also still a teacher. In most department chair positions, you're teaching two or three classes and you're leading. So you have the opportunity in the leadership to contribute to a large building, have the ear of the principal, 
evaluate and coach teachers, work with students, make decisions about curriculum, interact with parents, have a budget. So you're doing all of that work at the same time keeping your own you know, load of, of, of students and, and connected to them. Uh, I would say that the experience was many hats. Uh, as an English department chair, any department chair in a modern high school, you are a boss, you are a firefighter, you are a policeman, you are a rabbi, a psychiatrist, a therapist, uh, all, of, all of those things. Um, and really what you are as a department chair and your relevance is you are what your department members need at that time. Uh, some need a professional developer. Some need a shoulder to cry on. Some need you to be the boss to tell uh, somebody else, a parent, a student, they're wrong and to support uh, that teacher. Some need a psychiatrist or a therapist because a very difficult life challenge has interrupted their professional life. And you have to develop the listening and the humanity to be all of those things if you would like to be a successful department chair. You can't just be a boss. That's for sure. It's an incredible jump in in your skill set, isn't it? It was for me. Um, where I was the most challenged were was in the arena of coaching and evaluating because many of the teachers that I went into their classroom to evaluate them, they were uh, my senior. They had been teaching more years than, than I had by, uh, by far. Some were teachers I had in high school because I was working at the school where I had gone to high school. I also was challenged in terms of life experience. I had to learn how to listen how to uh, thoughtfully and reflectively hear people, both on professional issues and on personal issues that were important to them. Well, you know, it strikes me that when you read a book about leadership or you listen to a seminar or anything, frequently the leadership that is, is being spoken about is always something really high up. Like, oh, you're leading this company, you're leading this corporation, you're leading this huge thing. Whereas what I think is far more relevant to uh, to everyone else's experience is more like a, uh, a departmental level leadership, the sort of mid-level leadership. There's far more of those. And that's where I think a lot of the real mentorship happens and like you describe the enormous jump in the skill set between when you're just teaching versus you're trying to organize this department. Uh, I think that's like the major quantum leap. And I don't see too much out there in terms of leadership literature on that level of leadership. Perhaps I'm wrong. Well, the middle level of leadership is, you're right, Paul. I think it's frequently misunderstood and um, uh, underestimated. To, to, to be honest with you, uh, nothing happens in a modern high school with, without department chairs. It's, it's one of the areas that uh, we've created these department chair positions so that there are leaders embedded with their department members. And so they connect with department members, get valuable feedback for senior leaders who are full-time leaders, and then senior leaders have access to department chairs and it's a fascinating role because you have to be attentive to your building leaders. You have to be attentive to your to your teachers. But at that level, there there isn't a lot of focus. And, and one of the most important things is being more than, than a technical leader and understanding that a department chair 
is the sum of 100 conversations. The leading that happens happens in doorways. A five-minute doorway conversation with a department member that you can go to 30 or 40 department members and put together a complete picture of what your department needs, where it's headed, how students are doing, how teachers are doing, how parents are doing, how the community is doing. But as department chair, you have to be the person who's present and available to others. And too often, the message that department chairs hear is that they have to be technocrats. They have to be budget crats. They have to be evaluation completers. Uh, they have to be form filler outers. And, and those things have to happen. But they are the glue of a school or a department if they are people first, if they're a human being first. And that strata of leadership is an area of leadership that, that really hasn't been written very much about and really hasn't been researched or spotlighted very much in terms of department chairs. You'll hear it um, for assistant principals, principals, uh, uh, superintendents, depart, you know, he state heads of uh, education, uh, but not so much at that department level. It's underestimated. It's the, uh, the administrative functions can be overwhelming at first and people can glob onto that and never see beyond that hill that there are so many other, uh, I say, equally or more important things that a mid-level leader can do. And the, the danger in any institution is that the signal is that those institutional, bureaucratic, necessary um, tasks are the banner of success. And the reason why I say that that's a peril is because if, if mid-level managers are signaled that that is the bar of success in an organization, what withers is a human organization, a listening organization, an organization where people feel valued. Uh, and then if that's the impact on teachers, then what's the impact on students? Uh, one of my favorite professional uh, development books is Feed the Teachers, or they'll eat the students. And we want teachers are humanistic, you know, we want those teachers to be that way so that students feel that they're having a humanistic experience. And institutions that forget that uh, generally are, don't become high performing institutions and generally don't become the type of places that most of us would want us to send our students, our children. Well, they have to be empowered, the mid-levels, and that comes from the top. That, that is a more senior level leader who empowers their mid-levels to become their fullest. And how did that work for you when you went off to Glenbard or then to principal at Nequa Valley? Was that, you know, in my own leadership uh, experience, empowering the mid-levels was probably my my biggest goal and and probably the most difficult thing I had to do. But I don't know how that translates over to the educational side. Well, I believe for me, Paul, my, my journey um, over almost the past 20 years from the first day I was a principal to today as a superintendent, if I was honest with myself, I would say that when I became a principal, my metaphor was captain of the ship. You know, at the bridge, at the prow, um, shouting out commands, steering uh, the, the vessel, um, 
you know, the, 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 the center leader of, of all things th that were happening. Uh, if, if I used a metaphor now, I would say the leader is best in the engine room. <laughs> uh, providing the fuel to others to make all of the parts move. Because early in my career, I certainly, again, if I was honest with myself, thought that I had um, the position, the authority, and the energy to take it all on. Uh, I very quickly learned that these institutions are enormous with many parts and many people who bring talents to bear that are better, greater, more needed by the organization than my talents. So over time, I have become more cognizant of what I do well and committing to that, more conscious of what everybody else brings, and putting those talents uh, first and foremost. So I would say I am more um, the person who shovels coal into the mm -hmm. engine so that others can sail the boat, or I would say that I am a uh, orchestra director trying to make many different parts of an orchestra uh, harmonize and understanding that that you need top-notch players to really make a thing uh, be functional. And so it's just a, a difference that comes with experience, age, and different positions that I've held. I think that perhaps the proof that your methodology works very well is uh, a certain award that you got uh, in 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, um, the Bell Award. So, would you mind explaining what that award is and why is it that they picked uh, Dr. McBride from Nequa Valley High School? The, uh, Terrell HL, the Terrell H. Bell Award is named after the, the first Secretary of Education of the United States uh, when the Department of Education uh, was formed in the Reagan administration. And uh, its secretary was Terrell H. Bell. Uh, every year, uh, the U.S. Department of Education conducts the National Blue Ribbon process. And uh, it's an enormous process. Every state is allowed to nominate um, a set amount of schools based on the population of the state. Uh, so Illinois, every year, identifies uh, key schools, nominates those schools. I believe Illinois has something like 16 or 18 annual nominations. And a school might say, great, I got nominated, I've arrived. Your nomination merely gets you into the process. Uh, I was not prepared, prepared as principal of Nequa Valley. In 2017, we were nominated. I said, oh, this is fabulous. We got into the application process, and it was grueling. In our year, 800 uh, schools of all sorts, elementary, middle, high school, private, public, were nominated. In our year, only 330 received the distinction of a national blue ribbon. It was felt as difficult almost as my dissertation. So in that process, the 800 schools are nominated. Each of the principals of that school have an opportunity to complete an application as well for the Terrell H. Bell Award. And I was being pushed to do my application and pushed to do my application. And to be honest with you, Paul, it was my last thought. Um, I was solely focused on getting the school's application, Nequa Valley's application, finished, sterling, and entered. 
and uh, all sorts of individuals, my superintendent, others around me, noticed I had not completed the final Terrell H. Bell application piece and nudged me into doing that, and I did it. And lo and behold, uh, one day in September of 2017, I received a phone call from the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of Education saying I was one of eight principals selected out of 800 to receive the Terrell H. Bell uh, Award. Uh, truly, I think I received it as a representative of our school, uh, as a representative of the total um, application that we put together, as a representation of a number of, of, of things that people had written about what we were trying to do as a school. So I, I believe I was the figurehead for that work um, in receiving the Terrell H. Bell Award. But it was, it, it was quite an honor to, to be selected as one of eight principals in the nation to be lifted up that year uh, by the U.S. Department of Education. Oh, absolutely. And it does, uh, it does prove my personal principle that procrastination is always the best policy. But you had been principal of NEQA at that point for six or eight years, right? Well, Maybe actually longer? a little bit more. I had been principal 10 years. And so I, what do you suppose were the elements that the Blue Ribbon panel looked at or the Bell panel looked at that said, yes, this is a sort of best in show kind of school and these are the practices that we think are worthy of, uh, of emulating across the country? I think what distinguished us, it was a very conscious decision that my team and our school made quite actually in, in 2011. There was a new movement, it was called Common Core. There were Common Core standards coming out everywhere, big huge binders full of standards uh, for teachers. And at the same time we were receiving, receiving these mountains of binders, we were reading a book uh, by uh, Chip and Dan Heath called Switch. And their research indicated that huge tasks, giant complex problems oftentimes require the most simple, singular solutions. So we made this decision as a team. We said, listen, we are going to focus for as long as it takes on just a few high leverage strategies to move this institution of two buildings, 4,000 students ahead, to get our everything from our test scores to the gaps between students that we saw, we're going to get all that moving forward. So starting in 2012, we picked four skills we wanted all teachers, all students to work on. We invested in a structure of teachers meeting weekly in small teams. And then year after year, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, every time we came back at the beginning of a school year, we said, it's us again. We're going to keep on working on these strategies. And I think what happened, Paul, was for many educators for the first time in their lives, instead of every year being a new thing, we said, we are going to get good. We are gonna really establish competency and mastery at some core skills for students, at working well as functional teams with each other, and we're gonna do it over time until we feel that we're at an expert level. And, and lo and behold, by the time we arrived from 2011 to 2017, we had huge gains in 
every single area that you could imagine from graduation rate to standardized test scores to grades to closing gender and um, equity gra- gaps and racial gaps between uh, and learning disability gaps between students. Uh, because I think what we did is we, we got closer to making our big institution a mo- more coherent system that everybody using it understood. And I think that's what uh, the U.S. Department of Education recognized. Wow. Well, is it is it possible to explain what those four things you focused on were, or is that a long subject by itself? No, it's, pre- it's pretty simple, and it might be commonsensical to most people, but uh, when I name these, it won't be some kind of surprise, but it's the commitment of, in a modern high school where you have oftentimes 10 or 11 departments, and at that time in Neuqua Valley, we were offering daily 1,200 classes. Wow. So how do you get 1,200 classes focused in on some of the same similar skills? So the first was argument. How can someone construct an argument? I have an idea. I will explain this idea to you. I will show you my evidence of this idea. Something called inference. Inference is a reading skill where you're reading and your inference is not on the page. It's the activity that happens in your brain when you read lines of text or you see a video or you hear a recording and you make meaning out of it. The inference is the meaning that we pull from what we've heard or read. Drawing a conclusion from three or four pieces of data. Someone comes to you with three graphs, uh, three data points. Can you draw a conclusion from that? And then wrapping all of that around academic vocabulary. If you can't understand the vocabulary that's being taught in your discipline, uh, you can't understand the discipline. If the terms and, and, and the words that the teacher is using, the concepts, uh, are, aren't something you understand, you can't speak the language of chemistry, of English, of uh, American uh, history. And so those four things, argument, inference, drawing conclusion, and academic vocabulary, we just every year uh, hit those hard. How did you pick those four as your pillars? Or rather than pillar, maybe they were like your major tools in the toolbox or not sure what analogy to give them, but how did you arrive and say, of all the things we could focus on, people, we're going to focus on these four? Well, what we did is we, we did a just a data dive of about five years of students who had taken the standardized test that we take in Illinois. First, it was the ACT for college admission, then the SAT. And, and what I want to do is, rather than a class of 1,000, let's look right in the middle. Let's like look right at the 50th percentile. And is there any difference between the students who are above the average and students right below the average? And when we pulled apart their answers on questions, that was the difference. Students who answered well on argument, inference, vocabulary, conclusion questions, they were above the average. Students who answered poorly on those four skills, they were below the average. It was the line between being above average and being below average. And so we realized that you could invest your efforts in your top-notch students at the top, your highest students, but if you poured resources into those students, you're just going to go a few inches higher. 
But if you really look at the students who are just below the average and push them up, everyone's coming up. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on a, a terrific approach towards educating all the uh, high schoolers. And, and I'm delighted that you were recognized for this. So after Nequa Valley, you decided to make the jump into becoming a superintendent. And was it difficult to leave the hands-on workday at your school to become more uh, purely administrative? And have there been joys and sorrows attendant upon it? It, it was difficult. Uh, the principalship at a high school, is a, if you do it well, it's a singular experience. Uh, you become so enmeshed in the life of that building, the life of families, it becomes a giant classroom if, if, you, if you do it well. Uh, the role of the superintendent is different in that your role is to directly work with seven board of education members and your work is to support everyone else. The good news is I had, before going into the superintendency, really studied it and I knew that many principals making the leap from principal to superintendent had failed because they didn't discern the difference between superintendent and principal. They made that leap and either missed the principalship uh, just too much, so they were unhappy. They thought of themselves so highly as a principal that now they had principals working for them and were constantly micromanaging those people. So I had done a lot of head work on how I would arrive and I would enter um, as a superintendent. And I made it a point that I would empower my building administrators, I would trust my building administrators, I would let them be the principal. Uh, and then also my assistant superintendents, that I would sort of structure my superintendent life uh, to give them a great deal of authority over their portfolios of responsibility. And then when I was working with principals and with uh, assistant superintendents, that I would be a coach, a guide. I would not be a micromanager. I would not be a boss. I would not be a taskmaster. We would create things together. That also allowed me really to be more attentive to the Board of Education. And that's what I have to keep my eye on is seven board members. I have to make sure that they understand the issues, that I'm constantly connecting and teaching with them. And so I had to uh, save my time, attention, and focus for those seven board members to, to do what they needed to do. So I was very strategic. Can I say I was perfect at it? Of course not. I made a lot, many missteps. But I do feel uh, that that some of the foundational moves I made in terms of building climate and culture in our district, empowering people in our district, paid off on a fateful date, March 13th, uh, 2020. Uh, because that was the day that the curtain came down, uh, only six months into being a superintendent in our district with COVID-19. And our district was forced into shutdown. And if I had not made some of that foundational leadership capacity there was no way I was going to be able to operate on my own as a single leader uh, to lead our district through all of the maneuvers that needed to happen to face COVID. So let's dive into that one. Um, it's hopefully a once in a lifetime experience and it has uh, impacted every sector of society tremendously. 
back then in 2020, was it March 17th, you said? Uh, we learned March 13th that, 13th. We, that we would shut down, and we actually did shut down on March 17th. Uh, that was a Friday. We had the weekend to gather ourselves. We had Monday, March 16th to stay open, close, plan. Uh, we, we actually took that as a planning day and had our students at home, but all of our staff was at, uh, at in our district for the last time. And then on the 17th, we were uh, fully remote. So let's jump back in the time machine and get right back to there. It's March 13th or 14th or 15th, and the news is coming down, and it's gradually dawning upon you that this thing is bigger than big. And what are you feeling? You know, what are you thinking at that point? I, I did not feel great. None of us did. We were in a great unknown. We were preparing for something that had never happened, really in the history of public education. We only felt good because a month earlier, a number of warning signs began to appear for a number of us. And uh, in late January, early February, I went to my administrative team, I went to my board of education, um, and we all agreed that we were headed to a full stop, a full shutdown. So we began to devise a plan to prepare ourselves. And really by March 13th, we were ready to execute that plan. It was, it was ready, ready to deploy. We had our communications to our parents ready. We had our professional development for our, our staff ready. We had a remote schedule ready. Our Board of Education had made several very important decisions about health and about pay. For example, um, I had talked to our board and no matter what, we had decided that all 600 of our employees, no matter what they did, if they were unable to work, uh, we do have some employees like cafeteria workers, bus drivers, uh, certain paraprofessionals. If they're not at school, that's that's where they work, custodians, maintenance. We were going to full-time pay those people um, because not paying them could be cataclysmic for our community, for those employees. But most importantly, we knew those employees might not be around when we would need them. So right. all of that was staged. And really on March 13th, we got down to the business of operationalizing our plan. So we felt good about where, where we were going. And we actually felt uh, far uh, you know, out in front of, of maybe some of our, our, our colleagues. Uh, the governor gave us um, three weeks to plan for full remote. Uh, we took a week, and within a week, we had our students all online and continued instruction. Now, how many different towns are in the Lockport district? We, and how many different mayors and groups of, uh, you know, chiefs of police and whoever else did you have to coordinate with respect to these unexpected and profound changes? Uh, Lockport Township is one of the largest uh, high school districts geographically in the state. It's 65 square miles. We take in students from uh, Homer Glen, Lockport, and Crest Hill. Those all have municipal governments with mayors, village councils, city councils. Uh, we have a small community called Fairmont, uh, which is a primarily African-American, Hispanic enclave in uh, Lockport, nestled between Lockport and Joliet. We have a few students from Orland Park and just a few students from Lamont that come to our school district, as, as well as just a few students from Romeoville. 
Uh, so we cover a large geographic area. We have all, you know, all, all those mayors, uh, state senators, state representatives uh, to pull into the process as well as uh, Will County Sheriff, Lockport Police, Crest Hill uh, Police as well. I can only imagine that getting all that different cast of characters to sing from the same sheet of music was a, uh, a very difficult feat. How did you do it? You know, it, it, it was only difficult in the sense that if we had not done it, starting about February 1st, if we had decided to start doing it on March 13th, it would have been difficult. But we spent a whole month laying the groundwork for, for what we would need and the situation that we would be in. And so all of those municipalities and organizations were ready when we had to send 4,200 students home to complete schooling in their homes and the associated issues that could come uh, with that, with doing that. Now, the other townships around Lockport, did they handle the whole shutdown? Did you guys all handle it very similarly or were there differences from one township to the next? We, we did because we were under a state mandate. Our, our decisions were made by the state. The state ordered us to uh, keep our buildings closed, ordered us uh, to do remote learning and not to do in-person learning. Now, how different schools were able to adjust to that, um, there, there are some differences. We were very fortunate, some um, very thoughtful planning years before by our Board of Education to purchase every single student with a Chromebook and internet access. If you are a student in our district who you don't have Wi-Fi in your home, we provide you with a uh, hotspot, a free of charge uh, hotspot so that you can get that internet access. So our students already had that, knew how to use that. Our teachers already had laptops with uh, you know uh, connectivity and the same kind of connectivity. So we had a technology backbone to go remote. Not every district had that. Um, so there were different ways that they had to reach out to their students in order to continue education. But we were uh, fortunate so by some advanced thinking to have that in place and a platform that we could work off of to stay in touch with our students as they were at home. What we thought was going to be three weeks turned out to be the entire spring. Wow. Well, that's some incredible forethought from the people who were there ahead of time. Did they ever get a high five or any kind of recognition that that their inspired planning actually was so helpful for your township in moving through this? Yeah, we've highlighted it as often as we can. Um, Got it. I, I would say, as any superintendent will say, uh, it's evidence of your tax dollar at work. Your tax dollar in our community bought that Chromebook for that student, bought that hotspot, put that Wi-Fi in, and in our hour of need, it, it allowed education to continue. And it made a huge difference for you, I imagine. It, it, it did. Another way that your tax dollar was at work is we very quickly enrolled in uh, federal food assistance so that all of our students could have access to a free lunch. Um, at least in that phase of the pandemic, uh, individuals had to come to our school buildings or remote sites to uh, pick that food up. But we not only wanted to make sure that our students were able to access rich online resources, but we wanted to keep school meals coming to students who were in need. Feed the body and feed the mind, Ice. Well, 
Now that Omicron is beginning to descend in terms of incidence rates, and it's only at 200% of the height of last year's peak today, how is the school positioning to, or how is the, the township positioning to move back into hopefully business as usual? Well, we, over the past two years, since August uh, 2020, we have endeavored to be in person as much as possible. Uh, We did go through some ups and downs in August 2020. We had a plan uh, for hybrid learning, which basically involved our students, um, half of our students coming on one day, half of our students coming on the next day, and then alternating. Uh, That plan was derailed in August 2020 when the state, right before school opened up for many of us, released some new Uh, requirements we did not know about so we had to spend about three weeks in remote before we could come up to speed uh, with those new requirements but once we did we went into remote uh, we went into hybrid excuse me that lasted until about November this was pre-vaccination when we got to November 2020 uh, COVID got so bad we had 600 students out we had no choice but to go full remote but we came back at it in January of 2021 Uh, We returned to hybrid in-person. And then as a matter of fact, in March of 2021, we returned to 100% in-person. And now this year we're 100% in-person all the way throughout. What's helped us are keeping mitigations in place, uh, primarily masks, uh, social distancing, and when appropriate, putting students and staff in quarantine. Also, we've encouraged people to vaccinate. Last year, uh, we did not have as much controversy as this year with those mitigations. They have become political footballs. Uh, We, like many communities, have individuals uh, arguing over masks, arguing over vaccination, arguing over physical distancing. Um, What I would argue, however, is those are the very things that allow students to go to school every day. And we have the database to prove it. Um, If anyone looks at transmission on our campuses, uh, disease on our campuses, we are a very different story than what one sees in in the public. The soaring numbers uh, that the public has are are not to be found um, in terms of transmission in our facilities. And I think the reason is obvious. We use preventative measures that people do not find uh, in public. Well, if you think about it, if the child is at school and you have all those measures in place uh, it's a lot safer than if they're just at home and their parents at work and then the kids are all going to go outside and hang out together because that's what we do as kids and with no mitigation measures in place from a logical standpoint that makes all the sense in the world tell me a little more about the data though the data that you have on that if you would Well, one of the requirements in August 2020 that we weren't ready was we were required to do our own contact tracing. We were initially told that county public health uh, organizations throughout the state of Illinois would do the contact tracing for schools, but it became very clear that they did not have the capacity to do that. So we had to create a system to do our own contact tracing and a database to reside that information, and we've been doing it ever since. When we do a contact tracing event, there is a battery of Uh, almost 20 to 30 questions that we ask to understand uh, not only the effects on a person, but possible transmissions. So what we have amassed is we've amassed a very clear understanding uh, through almost now 6,000 individual contact tracing events 
of what leads to transmission. And it's very this clear. This is powerful. Yeah, it's very clear in our database. Um, we've had, <coughs> over the course of this pandemic, uh, out of those 7,000 to 6,000 events, nine person-to-person transmissions. Nine. Nine. And out of 6,000. Exactly. And the nine all have the same common denominator. Uh, there is no masking. There is no physical distancing. Uh, and uh, the person is of limited vaccination status. Those three are solid factors. Uh, we have had more than I can count instances where individuals who have been COVID positive have come in contact with uh, individuals who are not vaccinated, individuals who are not COVID positive, and yet due to masking, due to physical distancing, uh, there's been no person-to-person transmission over and over and over and over again. Uh, that really leads us to believe that we can move forward in this pandemic if we keep those measures in place. And it's always been, one of the things I think, Paul, it's misunderstood is sometimes people will say to me, well, well students aren't dying. Why do they need to wear a mask? Even if they get COVID, they won't die. That's never been the bar for schools. We've never uh, set a health threshold of, of death as uh, something that would spur us to action. And we have dealt with in my 33 years, everything from H1N1 to MRSA to, to norovirus. We are in the business in schools of preventing people from getting sick. Uh, that's, that's what we do. Interrupt that cycle of transmission. Now, where do you think the controversy is? I understand the school board meetings got a, a bit sporty over the past few years around the entire country. Uh, were they of a different character for the Lockport Township as well? I, I think for a uh, period of time uh, in July, August, and September, we had some very difficult board meetings. Um, shouting, yelling, screaming, intimidating, threatening, and overtures of, of violence that anybody listening to this, I believe, should be aware of and should not tolerate. Uh, difference, dissension, disagreement, public comment at board meetings, all appropriate, important for our dem- democracy. But when we, we threaten people, when we intimidate people, when we scream at people, when we shout down processes, when we interrupt board meetings so they can't occur, uh, that's shutting down democracy. And uh, that happened in our district. It happened all over the state of Illinois, really all over the, the country, and primarily on uh, ideas like wearing a mask, physical distancing, vaccinating students against uh, COVID. Uh, somehow these measures became politicized. And uh, I think what they were holding ransom is the mere ability for students to go to school. But, uh, and I think misinformation and disinformation played a huge role um, in this as well, creating um, a cottage industry of self-researchers, a denial of medical expertise, a belief in unverified science or pseudoscience. Uh, And it was a case where the internet can be a great uh, purveyor and equalizer of information, but can equally be a great purveyor of disinformation and misinformation. Wow. Well, how is it going now? Are these student uh, meetings, are the school board meetings getting back to the usual decorum that they 
you know, typically are, or are they still heated? Uh, they are. Uh, they're, they, I would say that they are, are, are back to a functional board meaning. And they, they got back to better uh, through because of a couple of reasons. One, uh, the proof was in the pudding. Uh, students came back to school and we put together a first semester and now a second semester of day in, day out, in-person learning. Students were coming to school. They were playing in a- athletics. They were going to activities. Their lives were normal except for masks and physical distancing and a quarantine if they had come in contact with COVID or fell ill with COVID, testing positive for it. And so it was hard to deny that things were working because things were working. Were working, right. Now, are you able to publish this at all or is this not the kind of material that is suitable for publication? Is it not, you know, do people have to be... Uh, I mean, there's certain like in a hospital context where things can be published and others uh, can't. Well, our database really, uh, the raw numbers can be published, but the individual instances cannot. Because in schools, just like in hospitals, we face actually both HIPAA and then its education cousin called FERPA, which protects uh, student uh, records. And staff records, uh, for that ma- matter. The raw numbers, the results, th- those those can be published. Um, and then also, just one other thing about about board meetings. I think we got back to normal as well because we had to put some measures in place, some rules, as well as having a police presence. And that's the thing that I think most people should be concerned about: is do we want to continue in one of our most democratic institutions, a school board meeting? needing a police presence to protect Board of Education members and maintain function. I think every American has to ask, is, is, is that is that's what it's come to? Is, is that where really we permanently, yeah. we want to stay there? We need the police to maintain order. Um, that's a question. But our, but our database, I look forward to someday pulling that together and, and, and doing the aggregate numbers to say one school's experience. Well, I think that would be really helpful for everyone in the country to have. Uh, last, uh, last subject, if we could, before we uh, uh, wrap this up, what are you working on presently? What is the uh, Council of Superintendents that you're developing and, and where are your current uh, concentrations uh, at the moment? Well I, well, I belong to, to two national um superintendent groups, uh, many locally, uh, but two nationally. Uh, One is called the um, Educational Research and Development Institute, ERDI, and we're a group of superintendents, about 45 of us, and we serve as a think tank um, for problems that are posed to us by the United States Department of Education, um, uh, thinkers and innovators in the education space, and one of the most important things we're working on is equity and diversity. Um, right now, that's another politicized uh, piece of American culture and society. Uh, we saw what happened with the murder of George Floyd. There was a, a rebirth of equity and looking at uh, diversity. It's been met with a backlash of efforts to really repress the discussion of racism, anti-Semitism, uh, that are that are so important. I, I always say that 
we know many, many, many people, millions of people in the past lived brutal and difficult histories. The least we could do is bear witness uh, to their histories and, and, and learn from it and have the courage to, to, to face it. Uh, so w- one uh, piece that ERDI that we're working on is exactly how, how can we have a better conversation in our nation about tough issues related to, to race and equity? How can we level up uh, the conversation? Another group uh, is, is really more an informal group of us who have come together to really acknowledge the fact that this crisis will be over. There will be a day when the crisis around COVID and the crisis around race and equity will, will ebb off. But how will people be impacted and affected? There's some, uh, there's some healing that has to happen. There are administrators who uh, are, are impacted um, tremendously. So what kind of leadership will we need to, to, to lead people out of these crises? So we're really exploring what, what kind of superintendents and principals will be necessary in the next 10 years as this leaves such an imprint um, on students, parents, politics, people. Uh, how can we create the leadership of the future that will, will, will guide people uh, thoughtfully uh, out of this present crisis? It's something of a futures desk. Exactly, exactly. We had a, uh, a futures desk uh, meeting uh, with the futures desk for the Marine Corps. And it was a fascinating hour or two where they were describing, they said, you know, we can't know what's gonna happen in 10 years or 20 years, but we need to guess. We need to, we need to try our best because many of the things that we're trying to develop take five or 10 or more years to develop. So even though it's impossible to really know, uh, you have to make the effort and that was their, their job. And it was pretty fascinating. There was sort of a cone, which is, at this, at, the, at this moment, we can theoretically know what we know. And then as it moves out further along time to one year, five years, 10 years, the, the diameter of that cone gets bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of all the possible things you might need to uh, factor in. And, and then within that bigger cone, they subdivide it into three smaller cones of almost a Goldilocks uh, kind of, you know, too big, too small, maybe this one's just right. Uh, And then they have this constant reevaluation process of how did we guess five years ago? How did we guess 10 years ago? And where are we now? So it sounds like you're doing the same thing with education. We are. And what we've done is we've tried to center our thinking on the start of that cone. I like that uh, analogy quite a bit. And we feel that the center of that is is not, you know, managerial skill important has to happen in any organization. Technical skill and technical competency, abs- absolutely. But we firmly believe in, in, in exiting this very difficult time, not only in our society, but in schools. We have noticed that over and over and over again, students and adults and parents report low self-efficacy. Meaning what? Meaning that they're less and less hopeful that they have the skills, the ability, the chance to improve anything. 
they uh, have doubt in themselves. They don't believe they can be effective. So how do you help people become more effective, feel more effective, feel that they have some control and some agency? And the only way to do that is, is one conversation at a time. And we believe that the leadership that is needed, um, kind of that cone is first self-leadership, to become self-aware, to become mindful, to become as in tune with oneself as possible. And then the skills that uh, attend to others, one person at a time, the human work that a leader has to do in a thousand doorway conversations to uh, help people realize their own efficacy. Uh, managerial leadership, technical leadership, technical competency will all be important, but they won't be substitutes or uh, satisfying <laughs> for many people um, if that's all that we can offer them as we exit uh, the, these, these present dilemmas. It's, it's, it's ultimately a people business. I love it. I love it. All right, now, Bob. As we're closing, let's just pretend you're advising Governor Pritzker or Mayor Lightfoot. You get your five minutes with them, and uh, and they ask you, you know, what, what do you want to tell me, Dr. McBride? What what's your advice to the good people of Illinois or the good people of the city of Chicago or the suburbs regarding education? If you could get one point across or two, uh, what would you say? And I know I'm surprising you with this one, so my apologies. Well, if I could talk to Governor Pritzker or uh, State's uh, Superintendent of Education, Dr. Carmen Ayala, I would, first off, I would say stay the course. Uh, they have been beat up pretty bad about the mitigations. They're the subject of a lawsuit, as are my Board of Education right now, uh, to, to put some of those mitigations away. But I, I would say stay the course if you can. Those are keeping students in school and that's essential. I would also say, um, hey, can we, can we take a careful look at communication? How does the state communicate? I, I think one area that our state has at times tripped itself up is in communication, poor communication, unclear communication, untimely communication, and in that gap, when communication is poor, untimely, or unclear, enter anger, enter angst, enter controversy. And sometimes that can enter so quickly that there's nothing in the world that, that can, can get someone to rethink that point of view. So I'd have a, a conversation about how can the state, large cities, do a better job communicating. Uh, because without good communication, we're, we're stuck. And it's ironic with the internet, with podcasts, with you know modern media and cable TV, we've got more communication than ever, but it's how do you control the narrative? How do you, how do you uh, be the source of authority uh, that people can trust? And I think, I think communication is the key to that. Uh, you know, to give you an example, uh, we've all too many times as superintendents, we've had a, a, a Friday message to the public. Um, we're going to shorten the amount of quarantine. We're going to have a new um, set of guidelines. So that comes out to the public. 
The public has the perception that it's a headline, it's happening. On the back end, as superintendents, we're being told, wait, we haven't sent you the guidelines yet. Please don't act, we'll send you the guidelines. A week later, we'll receive the guidelines. But for a week, we have been working with families who don't understand. They Got saw it. a headline yeah. that said, hey, I, I can, if I have COVID, I can come back after five days instead of 10. And then we suddenly say, it's, it's still 10 until we get these guidelines. So there's a difference between the headline and my lived experience. And what that does is it makes people distrust the whole system. I see. Who's telling I the see. truth here? I would just mad, rather get it right the first time. Well, Dr. McBride, thank you very much for taking uh, a lot of time today to discuss all these different matters with us. And I want to uh, encourage you the very best of luck with all your endeavors. And, uh, and please, again, uh, come back anytime when you find the, uh, the chance to do so. Hey, thanks so much, Dr. Paul Roach. Thanks for having me. Uh, and on behalf of our Board of Education, Lockport Township High School District 205, we're just going to keep on getting at it. I'd come on your show anytime. Thank you. Thank you.